We have this figure called Lady Justice. Her statue is seen in different places around the world. And oftentimes in our nation, when you see her, there's an image of her holding these scales and a sword in her hand. And she has a blindfold on to signify that she is impartial in her judgment. The sword means uh, swiftness to, to her decisions. And she, she actually traces all the way back to the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire. Uh, Caesar Augustus declared her to be one of the goddesses of Rome, and the emperor Tiberius actually built a temple to her so people could go and pay homage and, and seek justice through um, her favor. Uh, but what's interesting is at this very time when Lady Justice is being put forth as someone to admire and the ideals of, of impartiality and, and swiftness, there's an account going on in that very Roman Empire of a great mistrial of justice in, in the trial of Jesus. And so uh, we want our nation, we want all nations to hold to these ideals of a swift and impartial justice. But what happens when that isn't the case, when, when those who are entrusted with the power to ensure justice and impartiality, put their finger on the scale and shift it in whatever ways they want. What happens in those situations is that the innocent become oppressed and there's no hope for them. Friends, today we're going to look at Jesus standing before really three different groups of people. One is the religious leaders. Another audience that he has is is before Pilate and then Herod. And we're going to see in our study today these final hours of Jesus and how these forces are conspiring with different motivations and all working towards one end, which is the removal of Jesus Christ. And so let me pray for us as we get ready to look at this passage. If you are familiar with it, uh, this is going to be a good rehearsal of that. And if you're new to Christianity or maybe coming, coming back to faith in Christ, uh, this is an opportunity for us to, to dial in on what actually happened in those final hours before Jesus was crucified. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, as we come to this passage, we think about Jesus being put on trial. For, for some of us, this is a very familiar scene. We've read it. We've been through um, Easter services where it's been rehearsed. And, and yet, Lord, I ask that you would meet us again afresh this day. Give us clarity as we seek to understand who Jesus is, what he claimed, and what exactly happened to him. And for those of us who are, who are just exploring Christianity, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, the travesty of what happened, and not just the travesty, but the, the radical implications it has, even for our lives this day. So meet us where we are this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context is the religious leaders have just come with weapons and with soldiers to arrest Jesus, and they are carrying him off now for a trial. And it's in the middle of the night, and they're technically not allowed to have trials in the middle of the night. And even though Luke doesn't tell us much about what happened in the middle of the night, other gospel writers do. So Jesus is brought before Annas, the high priest, and then sent off to Caiaphas, the, the current high priest. Um, but we're, we pick it up with Jesus in the custody of soldiers. And we're told in Luke 22, verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Now, it's easy to read through these Gospels and come across this and skip right over this. But let's get what's going on. These are the guards of the temple who have Jesus in their possession, and they are mocking him. So just think about mockery and, and what that entails. And they're doing that, but not only doing that, they're doing it as they beat Jesus. 
Many of us are familiar with the beating that Jesus received on the orders of Pontius Pilate. But many of us forgot or maybe aren't aware that Jesus suffered beatings before he even got to that beating that Pilate issued. And here they are beating Jesus. And we're told further in verse 64, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? What horror this must have been to experience that. It's, it's one thing to anticipate a blow coming at you, and you can kind of maybe move or, or try to soften the blow. But it's another thing when you're completely blind to it and you're being struck on all sides with fists, with sticks, and they're mocking him. Jesus, prophesy. If you are who you say you are, then, then tell us which one of you hits you. What cruel and unusual punishment. The commentator Kent Hughes says, the torture had begun and Jesus stood in regal silence, dripping spittle in blood. We're told from the other gospel accounts that while they're beating him, they're spitting upon him, they're calling him names. And then Luke adds here in verse 65, they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. What an interesting word to use. It, it can mean in several different contexts to revile slander, and insult. But it can be also used in certain contexts to mean blasphemy. That is to take the things of God or, or to speak against God in an irreverent way. So you, Luke uses this word here. And I think we're meant to pause. Because this is a, a term that's used often when people speak against God. They're blaspheming him. And they're going to accuse him of blaspheming. But I think Luke wants us to pause and just once again ask the question, who is this man? Who is this man who's not simply being reviled and slandered, but is being blasphemed? Jesus endures that beating in the middle of the night, and we're told in verse 66 that when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. So these are the leading authorities in the culture. These are, these are the men with power. These are the chief priests, the scribes, these experts in the law, and they lead him away to their council. Now, this is not just any kind of council. This is the Supreme Court of Israel, the, the Sanhedrin, a group made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and headed by the current high priest. And so as Jesus is led before this Supreme Court of Israel, they lead him away to this council. And said to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. What an interesting question to ask Jesus, to want to get him to admit to. Now, for some people, that word Christ functions kind of as the last name of Jesus, right? Jesus Christ. But it's not a last name. It's actually a title. The word Christ simply means the anointed one. In Hebrew, it, it translates into the word Messiah, and it's actually a title. In the Gospel of Luke alone, it's used some 25 times, and it has kingly overtones, overtones of royalty. That's why they're asking him if he is the Christ. Because remember, they want to put him to death, but it's the middle of the Passover in Jerusalem, and they don't want the crowds to, to get mad at them if they take out Jesus, which was their original plan. So they're trying to get him to confess to certain things so they can bring him before the Roman authorities and have the Roman authorities put Jesus to death on their behalf. So already in the Gospel of Luke, we see these royal overtones. Remember when the angel appeared to Mary. He said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, 
You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. From the very earliest chapters, we hear these kingly overtones of Jesus. And remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds and they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And of course, you remember the time when when Peter had this moment of insight, this moment of revelation about who Jesus is. When Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God the King of God, the Anointed One of God. And he, that is Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Here, Jesus doesn't deny that he is that. He just doesn't want them going out and telling everyone this because they've already tried, the crowds have already tried at one point to take Jesus and make him king by force. And so even though they nail the fact that he is the Christ and Jesus admits to it, he doesn't want them spreading that information, at least not at this point in the gospel, because they have their own ideas of what a Messiah king would be. And Jesus wants to define that for himself. So back to Luke 22. They said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. If I say to you, I am the Christ, it's not going to matter because you're not going to believe in me. And if I were to ask you point blank, you will not answer me. Verse 69. But from now on, Jesus says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I wish I could see snapshots, pictures of what happened there, because I imagine blood vessels began to burst in, in the head of these religious leaders. Because this is exactly the thing they didn't want Jesus to say. Well, I should say, they don't mind him saying that because it's going to feed into what they want to do with him. But for him to have the audacity to admit that he is the Son of Man, that's really more than they can handle. This phrase, the Son of Man, let me remind you, it was Jesus' own favorite self-designation. When you read through the Gospels, you see this phrase used 80-some times. And it's almost always on the lips of Jesus referring to himself. And that phrase originally had its source in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where there Daniel had this vision of a a future person who would be given worldwide dominion. And those of you who've been at Mercy Hill Church know this because it's come up over and over again. But let me just refer to that, that time in the gospel of Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus walked this earth. This is what Daniel said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is, before God, and was presented before him. And to him, that is, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That figure that Daniel foresaw as being presented before God and being given worldwide dominion that all peoples should serve him, whose kingdom will never end. Jesus says, that is me. But here's the crazy thing. This son of man, according to Jesus, would be killed, which doesn't seem to line up with what 
that Son of Man figure is described as. In fact, back in chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man, that man who's given worldwide dominion and power, that Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. The path to his glory, the path to his kingdom, the path to his worldwide fame will come through suffering and death. And that's why one scholar described what Jesus did like this. He said, Jesus embraced the cross precisely as a king embraces his scepter. Yes, there are forces at work to put Jesus to death, but Jesus also said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I will take it back up again. So yes, on the one level, you could say Jesus was a victim of the forces that worked there. But on another level, this is actually the way he's going to enact his power, or rather to be given his power, through death and resurrection. In fact, after Jesus rose from the dead, and one of the last things he told his disciples before he was ascended into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when Jesus tells these religious leaders that from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, this was a bold claim, an audacious claim to be the person spoken of that everyone was looking forward to in the nation of Israel who would be given this power, the throne of David, and he would rule as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so they responded with a question. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? For Jesus to say this is almost too much, and it's not just one person who says this. They all are basically saying, you're claiming to be the Son of God then. This is crazy. Here, here a chorus of 70 Supreme Court leaders in Israel, all rising, demanding of Jesus, are you the Son of God then? So here's the third title. There's the title of the Christ, there's the title of the Son of Man, and there's the title of the Son of God. And let's just admit right up front, this phrase meant different things to different people. If you were to ask many people living in Rome, they would say the phrase Son of God refers to the emperor. Octavian was the nephew of Julius Caesar, and the adopted son became an adopted son. And on his death, he and the Senate of Rome declared Julius Caesar to be divine. So Octavian took the name of Caesar Augustus, and he was described as the son of God. Because his father is now divinized, he is the son of God. And there are other phrases used of him, like king of kings and lord of lords and the savior of the whole world. And so those of us who follow Christ know that the early Christians described Jesus in exactly this way. In other words, whatever the emperor claims for himself, he's really a parody of the true one. During the time of Jesus, uh, who's the, the emperor who's ruling at the time of his death was Tiberius. And even on the coins that were issued with his image on it, it said that he is the son of the divine Augustus. So the Romans would have said, who is the son of God? Well, that's easy. That's the emperor. If you were to ask Jews who is the son of God, they say there's, there's a figure that we've been longing for who would be recognized as the Son of God. In fact, Psalm chapter 2 embodies this very promise. 
whenever a new king would ascend to the throne of Israel during the days when that was allowed, when they were in their own theocracy, not, not now because they're under Roman occupation, but whenever a new king would arise, they would sing this psalm. It's a coronation psalm. And part of the words say, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, there was a sense in which the king of Israel was viewed as the son of God, the one who would reign and rule on God's behalf. And God is seen, giving him this promise. Just simply ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. That kind of sounds like that figure from Daniel 7, doesn't it? But here's the thing. None of the kings of Israel ever made good on this promise. None of them were given worldwide dominion. And so if you ask Jews in that day, who is the son of God, they would say we're waiting for him. We're waiting for this one who would, who would take his power and reign. But there's also another angle to this. A- another angle in which the son of God is mysteriously one with the father. And we see this, for example, in the Gospel of John. There's this place in chapter 10 where Jesus said these words. It's really quite fascinating. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus said those words. And then we're told that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. So see Jesus saying, I and my Father are one. The Jews are picking up stones to stone Jesus, and he arrests them with a question. (laughs) I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he's claiming a, a unique, special relationship with him that we only later begin to understand when the scriptures give us full revelation that God is one being who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A mind-boggling concept, no doubt. But we see the seeds of it here. So let's have a little bit of fun for a moment. Refer to something that kind of exploded with popularity in our culture, and I'm referring to the Da Vinci Code. This was originally a novel by Dan Brown, And it was wildly popular. And I remember having conversations with students who would read this book and their faith was was really challenged, if if not shipwrecked. And part of the the mystery of this book, um, in many ways, the story, is is a grand conspiracy of the Roman Catholic Church moving in such ways to gain power and, and to oppress. And kind of what gave credibility to this book was that the very beginning of it, Dan Brown has listed on, on the page, before you get to chapter one, these words. Fact. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. And so, one of the claims in this book that you come across is found on the lips of Professor Teebing. And he says this, listen. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, which met in 325 A.D., Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, 
but a man nonetheless. Here the professor is saying, it wasn't until the 4th century till this idea of Jesus being the Son of God appeared. Before then, he was just another man, a great teacher, mortal, but that's all he was. So what do you do with that? I remember people asking me questions about this, saying, I, I don't know enough history and, and I don't know enough of the scriptures to, to understand what's going on here. Is, is this really true? Is this just an invention later on? Let me just remind you of some of the scriptures. The gospel writer Matthew, I'm sorry, uh, Mark, in his very first sentence of his gospel said this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was written in the first century, not the fourth century. We already saw earlier when uh, the angel was visited by Mary that she was told the son that she would give birth to would be great and called the Son of the Most High. Remember when Jesus was baptized, he sees the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, Jesus lived in the very first part of the first century, about 30, 33 A.D., not fourth century. These words were pronounced on Jesus. Remember, Jesus was tempted by the evil one, who said to him, If you are the Son of God... Again, this happened in the first century. He said this multiple times in the temptation. If you really are the Son of God. Or how about that time when the disciples were in the boat and Jesus calmed the storm and they fell down and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Or how about the gospel writer John, who tells us that he wrote this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So no, Jesus was not declared to be the Son of God for the first time at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Jesus' very followers were calling him that right out the gate. In fact, they're asking questions, they being the religious leaders, at his trial. Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, interestingly, you say that I am. Verse 71 then they said, what further testimony do we need? You have, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Three things. The Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. The religious leaders believe that they now have enough, quote-unquote, dirt on Jesus. <laughs> enough that they can take and put him before the Roman authorities and say, look, this man is dangerous. He needs to be executed. And so we're told at the beginning of verse, or chapter 23... Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. We found this man in our nation, and he's leading our nation astray. He doesn't want us to be good subjects of Rome. He's leading us astray. He's, he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And we want to give tribute to Caesar. We love Caesar. And he's saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The reason why this is important, my friends, is, is Pilate could care less about the Jewish squabbles they had over theology. They could care less about their debates about the temple, their debates about the Torah, the debates about the Sabbath. They could, care, they could not care less, I should say, 
Um, they could not care less about these things. This is not something that, that Pilate wanted to be disturbed about. But if he's claiming to be a king, then that is his business. You see, Rome doesn't like rival authorities. They don't want people rising up, claiming to be king, leading insurrections in their territory. And so this catches Pilate's ear. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? I think Pilate knew enough of what the Jews believed that they were looking for this coming king, who would be not simply the king of the Jews. What, what they meant by that was he would be the king of the Jews, who is therefore the king of the world. He'd be this one given worldwide dominion. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Jesus is not fighting. You have said so. Let this charge stand against me. Pilate said to the chief priests of the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now, what Luke does here is he compresses everything. We find out from the other Gospels there's much more involved in this trial. But, but what Luke wants us to show is these religious leaders have this charge against Jesus of being a seditious king, leading an insurrection, and it's in the interest of Rome to put him to death. And so Pilate interacts with Jesus. And Luke just simply wants us to see what Pilate saw. I find no guilt in this man. From the lips of Pilate, the Roman governor, Jesus is innocent. This is not what they wanted to hear. We're told in verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, this, this phrase, stirring up, is not just, you know, he's having you know, little revivals out in the countryside. This has overtones of sedition. He's stirring up the people to rebel against Rome. And he's teaching this all throughout Judea, from Galilee to this place, this place being Jerusalem. When Pilate hears Galilee, something of a light bulb goes off in his mind. We're told in verse 6, when he heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who, himself, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate's like, oh, I'll let Herod deal with this little squabble that's going on here. I'll let, I'll let Herod deal with this. I, I don't want to mess with it. Now, this is the same Herod that John the Baptist confronted. Remember, this Herod convinced his brother's wife to leave him and to come be his wife. And John the Baptist confronted him, saying, you have no right to do this. It's not lawful for you to take your brother's wife. And Herod had him thrown into prison. And you may be familiar with the story. He had a party one night, and his wife's daughter was dancing seductively before him and his guests. And so taken was he with her dance that he just blurted out, ask me whatever you want, I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. She goes and talks to her mom and says, what should we ask? And her mom says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This Herod that Jesus is going to see is the same Herod that beheaded his cousin, John. We're told that not long after that beheading, that Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, 
This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. When Herod got wind of Jesus and the things he was doing, he was a little bit afraid. This is John the Baptist come back from the dead. That's why he can do these things. But whatever nervousness Herod felt about Jesus had long since passed away. We're told in verse 8 of Luke 23 that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. (laughs) For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Ah, this is Jesus, the miracle worker. Great. I want to see some magic tricks. I mean, just think if you had an audience with, I don't know, David Copperfield or David Blaine, these magicians who are, who are mesmerizing. Wouldn't you want to see some magic tricks? And that's what Herod is thinking here. Not, not that he wants to hear about God or about the kingdom. He just, he just simply wants Jesus to entertain him. And we're told in verse 9 that he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribe stood by, vehemently accusing him. Herod is asking question after question after question after question of Jesus. And Jesus stands silent before him. The chief priests, as they see this, keep accusing Jesus. We're told that they did this vehemently. They're vested. They're all in. They have to make this work. They have to make it stick so that Jesus can be killed. Verse 11 when Herod, uh, and Herod with his soldiers uh, treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. All really Herod could do before this man who's being accused is to mock him, to treat him with contempt. Then Herod gets this idea, he's going to, He's going to put him in splendid clothing and send him back to Pilate. I don't know this for sure, but it makes me wonder if if Herod didn't get some of his own kingly robes. (laughs) Send him back to Pilate is kind of a joke. We're told in verse 12, that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for for before this they had been at enmity with each other. They, They didn't like each other. In fact, they hated each other up until this point in time. And whatever is going on here with Jesus caused these guys to all of a sudden become friends. Really bizarre. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I would therefore punish and release him. You guys are coming at me saying this man is leading an insurrection. (laughs) He's been beaten to a pulp. He's not fighting us. Don't see any evidence that he's doing what you said. Look, even Herod couldn't find anything wrong with this man. He sent him back to me. I found nothing deserving of death. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. But I will punish 
and release him. Which raises the question, if this man's innocent, Pilate, then why are you going to punish him? It should have just read this way. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore release him. That would be justice. That would be what is right. But Herod doesn't really care about what is right or just at the end of the day. He just wants this to be over. He kind of saw through what they were doing because we're told by the gospel writer Matthew that Pilate knew he was out of envy the day had delivered him up. These are just some Jewish games, a little squabble among these religious people. I want to be rid of them. So he thinks he can just beat Jesus. He's already been beaten, but he'll just put some finishing touches on him. Maybe that will satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd. So we'll stop right there in our study of the gospel. We'll pick it up next week at the execution of Jesus. But now let's just pause and ask the question, why did Luke go to great pains to show us what happened when Jesus was on trial before the religious authorities and the civil authorities? I want to suggest he has two things in mind. One, Jesus was truly innocent of all the charges against him of being a seditious king leading an insurrection. That's not what Jesus is doing. His kingdom is not of this world. It's for this world. But he's not taking up arms against the Romans. But he also wants us to see that as the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, he is worthy of your allegiance and your worship of him. This is where Luke is driving his whole gospel to help us get a clear picture of who Jesus is and what our response to him should be. So I just got a couple points of application today, my friends. The first one is this. Let's get Jesus right. There's these titles of Christ, the Son of Man, and the Son of God that are applied to Jesus that Jesus accepts. Let's get those right and understand who he is. It's a big temptation in our culture to to take Jesus and just adopt him for any cause that we want. You know, he becomes our cheerleader. But let's, let's get Jesus right on his own terms. And let's understand the gravity of his claims. Remember, there's that great quote by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, where he talks about thinking through the options of who Jesus is. And at one place he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. My friends, we cannot just simply say, I like some of the things Jesus said, and leave it at that. We cannot even say he was the most wise person who has ever lived. I mean, it's certainly true, but we can't leave it at that. We have to take Jesus on his own terms. And some people have looked at this this uh, saying of C.S. Lewis and has kind of put it out in chart form for us to look at. And it goes something like this. We consider the claims of Jesus 
there's really only two options. Either they're true or they're false. And it's mutually exclusive. They can't be both at the same time. If they're false, we're faced with another option. Perhaps he knew that his claims were false. And if that's the case, Jesus is a liar. This man who taught you should not lie, let your yes be yes, your no be no, is himself found to be a liar if he knew that his claims were not true. And if he was a liar, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a hypocrite. He's evil because he convinced people to follow him even to, his, to their death. And he would be a fool because he himself went to death knowing these claims were false. But maybe there's another option. If his claims were false, maybe he did not know his claims were in fact false. In that case, he would be a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said, on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. I love that phrase. I mean, who says they're a poached egg? But Lewis is saying, that's the kind of crazy Jesus would be if he did not know his claims were false. He'd be deluded. He'd be crazy. But that really leaves us only one other option, and that is his claims are true. And if his claims are true, he is Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. And if that's the case, we're left with another choice. We can reject him, or we can trust him. Or we can do what C.S. Lewis said, and fall at his feet and worship him. Indeed, my friends, that's the second point of application. Let's bow our knees before this king. Isn't it ironic that Jesus, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, stands before these religious leaders who refuse to see it? Isn't it ironic that, that Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate could have bowed his knee to Jesus and he didn't? And before Herod, who's known for just killing people if they send him off the wrong way, did not bow the knee to Jesus. But what an opportunity you and I have, my friends, to bow our knees to Jesus, to proclaim him not simply as the King of kings and Lord of lords, but as, but as my King, as my Lord, as my Savior, who went to the mat, literally went to the cross for me. The Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. Therefore, I will live for him. You see, my friends, when we make that kind of commitment to Jesus in light of his commitment to us, it becomes life-changing. It becomes defining of who we are. You remember that time when, when Bono went on the show The Meaning of Life? This was on Ireland's national public television. Here the host brings on celebrities and people who are well-known and asks them deep questions about life. And, and Bono, the, the lead man for the band U2, went on there. And so the question was presented to him, who or what was Jesus as far as you're concerned? Put yourself in, in Bono's shoes here. You're, you're before a nationwide audience, and you're asked point blank, who or what is Jesus as far as you're concerned? What would you say? Here's what Bono said in reply. I think it's a defining question for a Christian, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a philosopher, because actually, he went around saying he was the Messiah. Remember that word, Christ. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was nuts. 
Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I mean Charlie Mason-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years have been touched, felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. (laughs) I just don't believe it. Then the person giving the interview said, so therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe he physically rose from the dead. Yes. I have no problem believing in miracles. I am surrounded by them. I am one. And when you pray, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe he made promises that will come true. Yes, I do. My friends, when we begin to understand who Jesus is, when we receive what he has done for us, receive the forgiveness of sins in his name, find ourselves reconciled before the God, we bow our knee to Jesus and confess that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yes, he has made promises that will come true. The kingdom is coming. He will rule from sea to shining sea. And my friends, It will be glorious, and no more injustices will be done by people who say they love justice, but manipulate it for their own ends. There, Christ will undo every wrong. He'll set every wrong to right, and things will be glorious just like they should be when this world recognizes Christ, the true King. (laughs) 